Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. Estimates show that glaciers are losing about 267 gigatons of ice every year. Wildfires in the United States have burned about 6 million acres so far this year, mostly in the West and Alaska. Pine Island Glacier is slipping toward the sea at an unprecedented rate. Extreme heat is gripping countries all around the world right now. This is the Ice and Fire podcast, and I'm your host, Teresa Soli. Here, we listen to glaciers melt actively as they transition from solid form into liquid water. And we hear from scientists as well as indigenous perspectives in order to better understand the repercussions of climate change in Alaska and beyond through place-based narrative and storytelling. Oh, it's been here almost a week, six days, and it's melted back 40 centimeters. But that's kind of on the low end for these ice cliffs. Uh, That... uh, that one over there that they just that they just got a, a visual on, uh, it melted out uh, over a meter in that same time. I think I know enough of fate to know that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Nature's best thermometer, perhaps its most sensitive an unambiguous indicator of climate change is ice. When ice gets sufficiently warm, it melts. Ice asks no questions, presents no arguments, reads no newspapers, listens to no debates. It is not burdened by ideology and carries no political baggage as it crosses the threshold from solid to liquid. It just melts. That's according to Henry Pollock, Ph.D., in his book, A World Without Ice. Ice and Fire is a podcast exploring the current ramifications of climate change. In Season 1, we're going to travel to glaciated landscapes in Alaska and meet some of the people who work intimately with ice. We want to know what is occurring to glaciers globally and the significance to people near and far. But in order to understand what's happening with glaciers now, we need to know how glaciers form, or how they grew to their current state. And that involves stepping back in time. Way back in time, like we're talking geological time. Throughout Earth's 4.5 billion year history, and long before humans and modern civilization evolved on this planet, there have been many ice ages. They come, glaciers advance and overtake the land, and they go, then downwards and retreat backwards, uncovering land and sending fresh water into the ocean. The term snowball earth is used to describe historic times in which the planet was almost entirely covered by thick ice. I'm going to imagine snowball earth as a landscape that resembles today's Antarctica, a bright white ice sheet with daily sunlight reflecting outwards from this icy surface to create an incredibly bright world. Windy, dry, frequently low visibility with snow falling instead of rain, and most difficult to imagine, little to no ocean at all. Yeah, so the term snowball earth, it refers to an ancient period. So this is before the dinosaurs, before our more modern kind of glacial cycles, and even before the Cambrian explosion where we see the trilobites and 
and kind of an explosion of multicellular large animal life on Earth. So this is uh, like 720 to 635 million years ago when there's evidence for ancient glaciation that's fairly widespread. And it's kind of controversial how widespread it was, whether it enveloped the entire Earth's surface in ice sheets and froze the oceans, or whether it was uh, kind of down to the mid-latitudes and still had a band of open ocean. That's Eric Peterson, postdoctoral researcher at the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. While people love controversy, we're going to have to come back to that one later. As many controversies are, this geological history one is complex. But to continue the drama, let's proceed with the dynamic nature of the planet's warming periods. Earth has gone through big cycles of uh, climatic changes through the past. 2.4 to 2.1 billion years ago was the Euronian glaciation period, the oldest Ice Age humans have data about. At this time, it was a snowball Earth and only single-celled life forms could survive. Another deep freeze came around 850 million years ago. And this one is thought to have been triggered by a reduction of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Many of these historic icy and ice-free periods are linked to gas concentrations in the atmosphere surrounding Earth, like carbon dioxide and methane. Of course, humans aren't responsible for inventing these molecules, but we extract, burn, and produce, either directly or indirectly, exponential amounts of them, sending the gases into the atmosphere, where they are now building up to create a blanket that traps heat, encircling the planet. 360 million years ago or so, plants evolved on land. This also impacted carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere because plants absorb CO2. More plants meant a reduction of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere yet again, which minimized the greenhouse warming effect and triggered a global cooling period. It was a long and deep freeze, really. I'm pretty astounded that before humans were around, an increase in plant biomass could actually cause an ice age. I think I'm in near disbelief of this because humans are now the living organisms immensely impacting this planet's system. Ice sheets have enlarged and shrunk many times during the Quaternary Glaciation Period, which began 2.58 million years ago. Scientists have a good grasp on this more recent geological history and all of its records of change. Although CO2 levels as high or higher than we've observed today have occurred in the distant past. They've never happened in the quaternary period. So in the past two and a half million years, they've never happened in, in human history, you know, before recorded human history, like any time during our species or our preceding species time on the earth. And we haven't seen that fast of a rate of jump of CO2. Estimates show that glaciers are losing about 267 gigatons of ice every year. Wildfires in the United States have burned about 6 million acres so far this year, mostly in the West and Alaska. Pine Island Glacier is slipping toward the sea at an unprecedented rate. Extreme heat is gripping countries all around the world right now. I'm Teresa Soli, and how I became interested in ice is a long story of diversions with a continuing theme of uncertainty. 
As an undergraduate student in biology, I became interested in marine science. And after completing a master's thesis on whale watching vessels in Alaska and getting my captain's license to drive boats, I got a little burned out. Or I just needed a new hobby or interest to grab my attention. Last fall, as I was navigating the completion of another master's, earned mostly during the pandemic, I began applying for grants that involved this podcast and how changes to the cryosphere, all of Earth's frozen water, impact people globally. I was also preparing to travel to Antarctica for the first time to work as a sea kayak guide. So one year ago, I was surrounded and completely astounded by ice. The Antarctic ice scape became my little world or huge and seemingly endless, though also cold, icy bubble. More of a snow globe, really. I mean, this was during the pandemic, around the time when the Omicron variant evolved and spread rapidly around the world. Omicron made its way down to Antarctica quite quickly. This may be too much information, but I actually tested positive for COVID for the first time while I was working around the Antarctic Peninsula. I still think about that awing icy landscape very vividly. Like, I almost don't have words to describe how beautiful and serene it is down there. And my memory of Antarctica's grandeur almost feels like a dream now. I don't know when I'll get to go back to the white continent again but I decided I will definitely need skis. The glaciated and rapidly changing landscape of Alaska is still my home. And this summer, I've been back to camping on, hiking atop, flying over, and driving little inflatable boats of visitors to the faces of glaciers, like Dawes Glacier in Endicott Arm. This is the first Tidewater Glacier ecosystem I ever visited after moving to Alaska and I went there with my mom and brother as someone very green. Right now I'm out of the elements, sitting in a small rectangular room about eight by 12 feet in length on the second floor of the Wrangell Mountain Center in McCarthy, Alaska. The sign on the open office door indicates its name is Cow Parsnip 4. I'm looking out the cracked window glass and a plane buzzes overhead. This campus is not like most others. There are no flush toilets. Solar panels power the main office building that was built over 100 years ago. This building is even still called the hardware store. It is built of brown wood, now aged and weathered, and has a flattened but tall front entryway. The black capital letters on the old storefront that spell hardware are fading. It looks like an old Western film set. But once you enter the hardware store, the aroma of muffins or freshly baked bread fills the air and warms the space, bringing you into the present moment. The Wrangell Mountain Center is where I met Eric Peterson, and the center acted as both our base camp as well as the campus for the International Summer School in Glaciology. Here in McCarthy, we are truly at the end of the road, and a bumpy dirt one is what carries most humans into Wrangell St. Elias National Park. The hardware store, central to the Wrangell Mountain Center, was constructed to serve the boom then bust mining town here, after copper ore was discovered in 1900. This is what brought us all here, enabled us all to be here, is these chunks of copper ore. This is a piece of calcasite. If you heated it with a torch, it would drip copper because it's 70% pure copper. So when they found those slabs of copper sticking out of the mountainside, they took samples, they made their claims, they sent samples out to the coast, 
and word got out that it was a huge find. That's Mark Vale. He's been homesteading in McCarthy since the early 80s. The glaciers were much bigger back then, and he's watched them change for nearly 40 years. When I came here, there was no lake at the toe of the glacier. It was ice abutting the uh, terminal moraine. And in the early 90s, the ice backed off of the island that you came across and, and the lake started to form. And now the lake's a mile wide and you know three quarters of a mile back from the spillway. And so given that, um, it's a great place to talk about glaciers. <laughs> and I'm not a scientist, I'm a generalist. I like to meet scientists because they help fill in little voids. Um, I live in the woods nine miles down the road and a mile and a half in the woods, there's no road to my house. Lived there for 37 years. Um, I do arts and crafts and grow gardens and hunt and fish and pick berries and mushrooms for a living and have done that my whole time here. So. I've experienced the changes of uh, the community. When I came here, there were only 18 people that lived here. Today, the Wrangell Mountain Center is more than just pit toilets and an old building. Yes, our mission is to connect people with wild lands through art, science, and education in Alaska. That's John Erdman, Executive Director at the Wrangell Mountain Center. The center contains several historic remnant buildings from the mining era, like the one currently being used as a lecture hall for glaciology graduate students. Skeletons have been erected that will become new buildings. Plans for rainwater collection are developing, and strawberry plants are in the soil. Rhubarb, chives, and chard make the ingredients list for meals feeding upcoming courses hosted at this eclectic campus. It's that immediate experience of, of being in it, being like immersed in, in wild lands. And of course, the more time passes, the more it seems like people are surrounded by artificial environments. Of course, if you look at world populations, more and more people are in urban settings. And of course, more and more people are conducting more and more of their lives in a virtual setting online. More and more of our experiences as human beings are mediated by screens. And so it seems like the more that that happens, the less of a connection we have with the organic world, with the natural world and especially with wild lands where we're immersed in an, in an environment free of any kind of like heavily artificial contexts. Dr. Regine Hawk, who runs the Glaciology Summer School program, hosted by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, says that the location of the 10-day course at the Wrangell Mountain Center offers students the opportunity for full immersion with few distractions. Wi-Fi and phone service is limited after all. On several afternoons, all phone service, internet, and credit card transactions were out of service. That's the cost of living and learning this far out. Another benefit of this location for Glaciology School is the close proximity to glaciers. McCarthy is surrounded by a UNESCO World Heritage Site, composed of four large parks or protected areas, and the largest non-polar ice field in the world. Just to the north, in poking at McCarthy with glaciers, lies Wrangell St. Elias National Park and Preserve. Wrangell St. Elias is crossed by four mountain ranges, the Wrangells, St. Elias, Chugach, and Alaska Ranges. 
The park and preserve also contains the biggest glacial system in the United States. 35% of the area is covered by ice, but this percentage is not stagnant. The park is becoming less glaciated. Recently, I've fallen in love with flyovers, or hopping in a small Alaska bush plane and traveling over ice fields and glaciers. It's just that when you're in a small inflatable boat, sitting at the face of a tidewater glacier, beaming at steep cliffs and shards of ice as they are stabbed by the sea, you are looking up from below and you can't see or estimate the true extent of the ice from that vantage point. But when you're up above, looking down, I mean, I wouldn't say glaciers look small, but you can see how they kind of flow through a valley like a frozen river. You can see the source of the glaciers, like the snow-covered ice field that feeds them. And sometimes you can even see the glacier's terminus, where it might meet the ocean. The landscape, its parts and pieces that sometimes look huge as they tower above you. They form a whole mass that comes together and suddenly, while you still feel small, the interconnected system kind of makes sense. The mountains, the land meets the ice, which pours into a lake or forms a river, that eventually empties into the sea. The landscape fits together and the ice is clearly part of that when you look down from above. You can see how much ice there truly is hiding back there behind the faces of glaciers and mountain peaks as you fly above in these little planes. Glacier flyovers have become one of my favorite pastimes. So when it was recommended that the glaciology students take a flight seat, I was like, oh yes, this is a must, I am in. So hold on a second. In working on this project for the last several months, I've decided in the least that I'd like this to become an audio dictionary that uses narrative and storytelling to define glaciology and climate terms. So this will become a narrative science audio dictionary. That kind of depends on what you define a glacier, I suppose. We need to clearly define a glacier at this point in episode one and an ice field. We'll leave these definitions to an expert. Yeah, so a glacier is basically ice on the landscape that's formed from the compression and recrystallization of snow that comes from atmospheric precipitation. So basically, if you find yourself in a climate, typically this is in mountain ranges or in polar latitudes, where you get more snow that falls every winter than is melted out each summer. That then builds up and will compress under its own weight to form glacier ice. The second thing that we need for a glacier is that uh, it flows or it has some evidence that it's flowed in the past. So as this ice builds up under its own weight, it also flows very slowly downhill. So now back to the narrative. Flying above Wrangell St. Elias National Park started with a U-turn after we took off from the airstrip. We flew into a green valley with just a few small remnant debris covered glaciers up at elevation. And in the lower parts of the glacier, that will often coalesce into a layer of rocks that we call a debris layer that can completely cover the ice. But as we continued up that valley, carved out by ice, we entered a much different landscape, one dominated by white snow, highly reflective ice, deep blue crevasses. In places where you have very extensive glaciation of an entire mountain range, but not enough to bury all of the ridges and peaks, you can get what's called an ice field. And oftentimes how this is manifested is at the lower reaches of the mountain range, you'll see individual glaciers 
So reaching down into the valleys, you'll get a distinct glacier with its own distinct uh, shape and tongue. But if you climbed up that glacier towards the top of the mountains, you'd see that it connects to many other glaciers and it's all a contiguous kind of ice field. One dominated by white snow, highly reflective ice, deep blue crevasses, and just so much dark rocky material being dragged along by the ice. There's so much sedimentary rock locked in or just sitting on top of the ice. Rock that moves as the glacier flows. In particular, I study something called debris-covered glaciers. And um, when you think of a glacier, you traditionally think of a clean block of ice that's flowing, sliding down a mountain. But, but nature isn't always that clean and aesthetic. And oftentimes when you have a glacier sliding down a mountain, it will also accumulate rocks and gravels and sand that fall down upon it from the rock falls off the mountains. And in the lower parts of the glacier, that will often coalesce into a layer of rocks that we call a debris layer that can completely cover the ice. In fact, I study a glacier here in the Wrangell St. Elias Mountains, the Kennecott Glacier, where it's almost unrecognizable as a glacier. In places where you have very extensive glaciation of an entire mountain range, but not enough to bury all of the ridges and peaks, you can get what's called an ice field. And oftentimes how this is manifested is at the lower reaches of the mountain range, you'll see individual glaciers. So reaching down into the valleys, you'll get a distinct glacier with its own distinct shape and tongue. But if you climbed up that glacier towards the top of the mountains, you'd see that it connects to many other glaciers and it's all a contiguous kind of ice field. We flew over both the Root and Kennecott glaciers, which we also traversed to collect data and for a field day during the glaciology school. It was just magnificent flying over, seeing the glaciers and ice field from another perspective and observing how the glaciers we had all walked upon all fit together to comprise a holistic landscape and how these glaciers meet, scrape, and churn the earth. And of course, these flyovers just give you mad respect for the land, in addition to making you feel so humble inside. Fire and Ice is a poem written by Robert Frost and was recited by James Marcus. Thank you to the Wrangell Mountain Center and locals in McCarthy like Mark Vale. Here's a shout out to the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Glaciers Group, as well as students who attended the International Summer School in Glaciology in summer of 2022. Also to Eric Peterson for being so cool for sharing his work in time. Thanks to everyone that assisted by filling out a customer discovery survey and to the Center for One Health Research at UAF. Thank you to Dr. Henry Pollock for giving permission to share excerpts from his book, A World Without Ice, and to National Public Radio for letting us use their headlines. Music in this episode is from Free Music Archive and Blue Dot Sessions. Financial support for producing this podcast came from Alaska EPSCoR and the National Science Foundation, University of Alaska Fairbanks Graduate School in the form of a travel grant, the Alaska Center for Innovation, Commercialization and Entrepreneurship, Center ICE, as well as the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps program. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under award number OIA 
1208927 and by the state of Alaska. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the author and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. This podcast was hosted, written, and narrated by Teresa Soli and edited and produced by myself, Mary Ald. In the next episode, we'll report from the surface of the Kennecott Glacier. This is the Ice and Fire podcast. Thanks for listening.